Hello everyone. Welcome to this installment of Channel 105. My name is Stephen Gotzler. I'm a teaching assistant professor in the Department of English and Comparative Literature here at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. This episode presents four segments produced, recorded, and edited by the students in section 97 of English 105 this spring. You can go back and listen to Graham and Dan's wonderful introduction to the channel to learn a little bit more about the 105 curriculum more broadly. But this episode is centered around a broad topic, which was chosen collectively based on the various interests that students expressed. For this group, a shared interest emerged around the quality of contemporary social life, which gives one the feeling of being both together and alone. Within that rather broad theme, students were then free to pursue more focused topics related to areas of study or cultural expression that were meaningful to them. In the course of making this podcast, the students engaged in both primary and secondary research, utilizing academic resources and conducting interviews. They practiced methods of field recording, media capture, and narrative composition to craft a series of vignettes that address this broad theme. In the episode that follows, we explore the relationship between belonging and isolation. From animal to fungal communities to language barriers or forms of censorship, it asks, does the need to belong make us human? To what extent are people willing to give up their individuality to become part of a group? And when do forms of community become hindrances to free expression or self-actualization? Enjoy. It seems like the world today is more connected together than ever before, thanks to the internet and social media. But did you know that some plants can bring people together as well? For example, fungi can help bring people together and are one of the most diverse organisms on Earth. Just to list some of the crazy things that we know about fungi, so the largest living organism on Earth is a fungi. Fungi can breathe. They're known to eat flesh at times. They can be bioluminescent, meaning that they like actually glow in the dark. And they can also help trees talk to each other. At first, fungi might not seem like the most connected organisms, but they surprisingly are. So they in fact do actually help trees communicate, and that's not the only way they help. So from a biological standpoint, fungi are made up of these tiny little threads called mycelium. They travel underground, connecting the roots of different plants in the area. So like even different species are like bound together, allowing them to actually communicate with each other. My name is Jonathan Dye. And I'm Susanna Peterson. And today, let's talk about how fungi can help bring people together. One great example of how fungi help connect people is through the media, specifically mushroom music. I'm Tarun Nair. I'm from Vancouver, and I make music using mushrooms. During the pandemic, he started using synthesizers to make a form of music from plants and mushrooms. The basic technology he used was able to change the electrical charges happening in the organism and to act with like notes and rhythms. Everything is really holding vibration. We're just surrounded by electromagnetic waves all the time listen to all of the electricity and waves. It's a whole world. 
His greatest hit was his first try when he used synthesizers on mushrooms. Over the last few years, I've really been immersed into building my own synthesizers. I came to understand that everything has bioelectricity. The video that he posted blew up overnight with millions of views. And he used these synthesizers on many different types of mushrooms and each video continued to get millions of views. Here's what one of the, his videos sounded like. The music created from these videos have created like a sort of community. Turin's Instagram now has over 114,000 followers. And when his video blow up, then there's millions of people that like and comment on them. So to say the least, like his music has become very successful. He has now even played live mushroom music at Art Basel in Miami and at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles. Some books have even been written about mushroom. Entangled Life by Merlin Sheldrake has become one of the biggest influences in the rising interest in mushrooms. But well, wait, who exactly is Merlin Sheldrake and what does Entangled Life really mean? My name's Merlin Sheldrake and I'm a biologist and a writer. He also researches the relationships between humans and non-human organisms, especially fungi. Sheldrake wrote Entangled Life to show us like the extent of how interconnected we actually are with fungi and how they impact our daily lives. So some of the things he mentioned in the book range from how fungi can alter our minds, how they shape our future or heal our bodies through medicine, and even help us remediate environmental disaster. Personally though, I think the most interesting aspect of fungi, which he mentions, is the way in which they communicate and how massive these communication networks can be in between species. One of the largest fungal networks described thus far as a network in Oregon that sprawls over nearly 10 square kilometers and is somewhere between 2,000 and 8,000 years old. That was an interview that Merlin Shudrick had with Penguin UK. It's so interesting to see how fungi are not only connected to so many things on Earth, and they are necessary for the survival of them. Which is crazy thing to wrap your mind around, especially when only 6% of all fungi species have ever been described. It's even more incredible when we think about how much of our history is wound up with fungi. Alcohol is produced by yeasts, which are fungi. Bread rises because of yeasts also. Humans have used fungi medicinally in many ways. Penicillin is a very famous example, an antibiotic that changed the course of modern medicine. Alkaloids extracted from ergot fungi, which grow on uh, grains, uh, were used historically by midwives and herb wives uh, to induce uterine contractions and to stop postpartum bleeding. Whenever we cultivate a plant, whenever we feed ourselves with a plant, we are entering into a relationship with a fungi or with communities of fungi that we don't realize are there. What we think of as plants are really algae that have evolved to farm fungi and fungi that have evolved to farm algae. And today, uh, almost all plants depend on relationships with mycorrhizal fungi, which means root fungi. They live in their roots and extend into the soil and help them to acquire nutrients and water and protect them from disease, and without which uh, plant life would be impossible. Sheldrake has such a good way of explaining how much our lives secretly depend on fungi without e us even knowing. Personally, I think it's such an interesting thing to think about because it makes me wonder what other aspects of life are dependent on fungi. 
Well, what about here in our own community? To find out more, we sat down with Dr. Britasville Glias, who is an expert of, in mycology at Duke University. I'm a professor in the biology department at Duke University, and I teach uh, fungal biology. I teach a course in mycology. I also work on microbial ecology using molecular techniques. We're interested in fungal diversity. We're interested in how fungi communicate with plant hosts and how they cause disease as well. And also particularly how, how they interact with as symbiotic uh, members of a mycorrhizal community. The history of mushrooms go all the way back to the Ice Ages. Uh, and so, you know the story of the Iceman? Probably was discovered in a melting glacier border of Austria and Italy back in the 80s. They call him the Iceman. But he was a human, and he was carrying different kinds of uh, mushrooms in his kit. So, you know, he had a bow and arrow, and he had uh, some other tools. And, and one of the things he was carrying was uh, different kinds of... Uh, polypore mushrooms, uh, little bracket fungi, presumably for use as tinder for making fires. And so there's, you know, there's evidence in archaeology for lots of different uh, ways that people have been using fungi, as well as for food. So I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of different ideas. Wow, it's so interesting to hear about mushrooms and them being used in, a, in such a way back then. I have to assume that we know a lot more about mushrooms today, right? We've only described less than 10% of the fungi on the planet. You know, so there's, by some estimates, there's up to like 5 million species. Only, you know, less than 100,000 fungi have actually been named. If you, you know, do the math there, you can see how there's a tremendous amount of unknown diversity. Uh, especially when you're sequencing DNA from from soil or from from wood, uh, you're likely to encounter a lot of undescribed species. As it turns out, we really only know a little bit about mushrooms, and that's probably because of how mysterious they are. Throughout history, mushrooms were also used in various life-saving medicines. Fungi produce secondary metabolites, compounds uh, that include some of our basic antibiotic. You know, the penicillin class of antibiotics are produced by a fungus called penicillium. Yes, and there's uh, a variety of other fungi that produce all kinds of antagonistic compounds that affect bacteria. So there's a lot of interest in sort of mining natural products to, be, to use as, as antibiotics mm -hmm. in the pharmaceutical industry. Penicillin mold is grown fermentation tanks, and then the medicine is separated from the mold. Today, penicillin is now a widely used antibiotic that is used to treat a variety of ear, nose, and lung infections. They also like, have a health benefit that can come from simply eating them. You know, besides producing, uh, uh, you know, crazy metabolites, fungi also produce uh, lots of different sort of basic polysaccharides and other uh, things that have nutritional value, they can stimulate immune function. Now, of course, some fungi can also harm humans as well. Some people with certain medical needs may be more susceptible to getting a fungal infection. 
you know, what are these fungi doing? People do get fungal infections, and, yeah. and uh, those are usually uh, linked to other issues in health uh, that affect our immunity. And so then they become, uh, you become a walking Petri dish, uh, you know, because if, if your immune system is knocked back, then you are at risk for getting these infections. So how can people find these mushrooms and be able to cultivate them in a safe environment? In a variety of, I mean, any forest. <laughs> and a lot of the work we do, uh, you know, ends up uh, in the greenhouse or a, a phytotron, a special facility for growing plants and uh, you know, tree, small trees and so forth. But we also do plenty of field work. Even here in North Carolina, where both UNC and Duke are located, there is a thriving mushroom foraging community that has a that has a rich history. There's a long history of people studying fungi, both at UNC and at Duke. And so, not so not surprisingly, you know, when you sequence fungi from our environment here, uh, we usually find out who they are. And you know, we have a better better linked. But you know, most of the world is is still undescribed. What about other parts of the world? Well, different cultures have been have found many benefits of eating mushrooms as well. Uh, you probably realize this: uh, different cultures have different attitudes toward toward eating mushrooms, for example. So, a lot of European cultures are very fond of collecting mushrooms in the forest for food, mm. uh, and then some some cultures uh, are are kind of mycophobic, right? So they want, you know, but I think, uh, you know, many cultures that uh, are familiar with eating mushrooms, uh, Asian cultures, Japan is where uh, most of our, uh, the name shiitake comes from, right? So people eat shiitake mushrooms. Shiitake means oak mushroom. And so in Japan and Asia, Ch uh, China, Korea, uh, shiitake mushrooms grow on logs and they also cultivate them on sawdust and in this country people grow the same mushrooms on on oak wood and other kinds of wood. So mushrooms have been used for a long time and we still see how they're being used today. What about the future? Uh, the, the future is very bright. Now I, th I think a lot of you know right now there's tremendous interest in in mushrooms and fungi generally. It's great to hear that there are many people, both young and old, who still have a passion for fungi in nature. Wow, we've learned so much about mushrooms. Let's return to Tarun's story once again. The music that we just heard is one of the viral mushroom music videos that Tarun made. Hearing this music really solidifies our new fascination with fungi. I mean, how awesome is it that our environment and us rely on an organism that sounds that cool? Through history, media, music, and culture, we see how this new perspective of fungi is intertwined with humans and the environment we live in. So we encourage you to try to see the world through mushroom eyes, which Tarun describes as offering a different way of seeing the world, a world which is alive and full of wonder. So even if we sometimes may feel alone in this road, we hope that this new perspective can bring us back together once again.
And I am Claire Kenefick. And today we will be discussing isolation and belonging through the lens of animals. Animals coexist in different ways. As humans, we need one another to enjoy life and to survive, of course. However, within nature, there are various ways animals live together. These structures exist on a spectrum, from super connected to all by the lonesome. The ways animals live can be compared to various types of music composition. From the hive of the honeybee, to a family of lemurs. To a particularly lonely blue whale. In this segment, we will be looking at the way three species of animals interact, giving us different perspectives on how life can exist. First, let's take a look at the buzzing social structure of honeybees. Honeybees are eusocial creatures. This means they are a highly organized species. So organized, in fact, that they all seem to share one brain. Yep, scientists call it a collective brain. Each honeybee has a role that becomes the sole purpose of its life. The bee blindly serves for the well-being of the hive by fulfilling their duties. So the hive is like an orchestra, where every individual individual bee has an important role to play that contributes to the well-being of the hive? Yep. These creatures are the epitome of social hierarchy and social order. Each colony consists of one queen bee, the leader of the nest, and the only female bee that is able to reproduce. Drone bees are the males of the nest. Their job is to mate with the queen. Drone bees die instantly after mating. Although their time is short in the hive, drone bees and their tasks are still incredibly important. Worker bees, the rest of the females in the nest, have a wide range of occupations. Some worker bees guard the hive, some nurse the recent hatchlings, some gather nectar, and some work on the interior structure of the hive, to name a few. Worker bees have bodies built specifically for fulfilling their tasks. They have a hypopharyngeal gland that is used to feed the larva, queen, and drones. They also have a proboscis, or a long tongue used to remove nectar from flowers. With these and other built-in tools, worker bees are able to keep the hive running smoothly. All of this would not be possible without communication. Honey bees send messages about possible food sources through the waggle dance. Pheromones are chemical substances released by the bees that relay information about reproduction, possible threats, and other important messages. This is what allows for the collective brain to work. Overall, the honeybee social structure is very fascinating. The highly organized structure and intricate collaboration allow these bees to thrive together in harmony. So bees are on one end of the social spectrum, the super social end. In the middle of the social spectrum, we have primates. This includes humans and lemurs. Unlike honeybees, primate social structures are focused more on familial bonds. There is a greater sense of individuality, but primates still work together for the well-being of the group. To find out more about social behavior from our fellow primates, I visited the Duke Lemur Center and talked to Dr. Lydia Green about lemur social behaviors. 
My name is Lydia Green, and I'm technically what's called a postdoctoral associate here at the Duke Lemur Center in Durham, North Carolina. But really what that means is I'm a research scientist on staff, and I specialize in studying lemurs. Dr. Green has studied almost everything there is to know about lemurs, from the gut microbiome of lemurs to their social structures. When I asked her about lemur social behaviors, she explained that lemurs are incredibly social. They spend lots of time together and bond in many ways. Common behaviors we see that are pro-social, so, so the nice social behaviors would be things like huddling, snuggling, contact, grooming each other is a big one. So lemurs use their teeth to groom each other, um, so you'll often see them running their teeth through each other's fur as a way of removing parasites, but also just as a way to bond and keep each other fluffy and, and looking nice. Like a string quartet, each member has their own unique quirks, but they come together to work in harmony, creating beautiful music. Along with physical contact, parents' relationships with their young are important for developing strong social bonds. Units where dad plays a really important role in, in raising kids and that the kids actually survive better when dad's in the group. So co-parenting is really important in raising young leaders. Play is also really important to the development of leaders. They learn a thing or two by goofing off with each other. Um, you'll see play, particularly in some of the younger animals, as a way of learning social rules and cementing social bonds. Lemurs also communicate with each other in a variety of ways, particularly through their vocalizations. Shared vocal communication, there's a lot of sort of low, deep vocalizations, soft, that these animals make um, within their social groups as a way to keep track of each other and cement bonds and organize group movements and things like that. Here's an example of the sounds lemurs make to communicate. These behaviors are important for the well-being of the whole community. The lemurs learn to live and thrive with each other. To lemurs, bonding means surviving. Their close social connections increase trust among them. This trust means greater protection against predators and more gathered food for the lemurs to share. Even nocturnal lemur species who forage alone for food at night go back to the community burrows to sleep together during the day. Um, and then we get sort of a more dispersed social system in some of the nocturnal species, where maybe during the night where the mouse and dwarf lemurs are foraging, you might see them by themselves, but they'll return to the same nest or the same burrow or den um, or tree hole overnight to all sleep together during the day. And so they cement those bonds during the day by snuggling um, and grooming each other. However, not all social behaviors are sweet and cuddly. Aggression is also an important part of lemur social life. There's also a lot of less nice social behaviors, things like aggression, things like maintaining dominance hierarchies that are equally as important for mediating the lives of these animals. They're sometimes not as joyful to talk about, um, but aggression is a really important way that dominant structures are cemented um, and that animals know their place in, in the pecking order. Lemurs are also pretty clear when it's time for their young to leave the nest. Um, so aggression can be a good way of kicking out your kids and telling them to essentially go to college. Yet even though this aggression seems negative, it is necessary for the well-being of the lemur groups. You heard that right. It's even good for the individual getting kicked out. This behavior prevents inbreeding. Also, it allows these young lemurs to find families of their own to bond with and protect. We can learn a lot about human behavior from lemurs. As primates, we share a lot of similarities like establishing close family bonds, 
playing with our young, and yes, even showing aggression. Lemur behaviors such as co-parenting are examples of how we can improve as humanity. Ultimately, I think it can be summed up into what Dr. Green said. And there's really no such thing as a solitary primate. Um, so pretty much by definition, as a group, we're all social animals, humans included, all the way down to the smallest primate on Earth, the mouse lemur. Let's face it, humans are a social species. We need to interact with each other. We need to bond with each other for our survival. Community is as much a part of us as it is for other primates. And without it, we likely wouldn't have survived as a species. So even if we are kicked out of the group or isolated, there is hope that we can find a new family, a new group who will love and support us. Well, if you're going to get kicked out of the group, you might as well be yourself. That's the case with 52 Blue. 52 Blue is a whale originally discovered in the Indian Ocean by military submarines. It was initially thought to be an enemy for the reason that its sonar calls register at 52 hertz, way above the normal 10 to 39 hertz range that blue whales sing at. Here's his call. We bring up the story of 52 Blue because he is unable to communicate with the others in his species, which are normally found in pods, numbering up to 60. Unable to communicate, and therefore locate others in its species, this whale lives what is presumed to be a solitary existence. Because of this, this whale has been referred to as the loneliest in the world. This whale can be likened to a solo instrument, playing on by itself, with no one else to join the song. This shines light on one of the most important parts of belonging, the ability to communicate. Physically without the voice, 52 Blue lacks the ability to relate to others. And because this is a whale and we are humans, we can't really speculate on what it's going through. But the idea has larger implications for what it means to belong. As soon as humans can, we learn how to express ourselves to others around us. It is and has been crucial for our survival to communicate with other humans. This communication is taken for granted, but as we leave you, we ask that you step back for a second and appreciate all that your community and communication has done for you. In the intricate interactions of the honeybees, the relatable world of the lemurs, and the solitary existence of 52 Bloom, we have looked at different ways that our fellow life forms exist. In a world full of information and globalization, we have never been more connected. While others would claim that we are actually the most disconnected in human history. And information plays a large part in who and how we connect with others. Censorship, a long and difficult history of struggle around the world against being silent. But how does it shape how we interact with others? Our ability to educate others and learn. 
ourselves. I'm Cameron Young. And I'm Derek Godwin. Let's talk about it. So what exactly is censorship, Derek? It's a pretty broad topic, but it's often agreed that censorship is the institution or examination in order to suppress or delete anything considered objectionable. Right. This could include a lot of different things like films and music, different books. Right. And most often fear is a big part of why these things are censored in some way. There are so many examples of this idea of public fear interfering with the spread of information, like with the Everson versus Arkansas case. Yes, the case about the anti-evolution statute. In 1928, Arkansas enacted a statute prohibiting the teaching of the theory that man evolved from other species of life. A teacher taught about the topic from a new textbook and immediately faced backlash from parents and the community. She then sued against the statute, saying it was unconstitutional. Yeah, and she did actually establish that she and other teachers were allowed to teach it, but they could only teach it as a theory, not as a concrete fact. So it was still somewhat limiting for educators at the time. Which is where our main concern comes into play. The state of Florida is never going to descend into some woke dystopia. Our state is the state where woke goes to die. So, that was the current governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis. Yep, he's definitely getting them riled up. In the past year, Florida has enacted several laws that aim at schools, most of them targeting what can be taught or even talked about in the classroom. A lot of wonders under fire is considered critical race theory and queer literature and topics. There's a lot of pushback on what is being restricted and concerns being raised across the country. The concern I have about these anti-critical race theory and anti-woke and anti-LGBTQ don't say gay type laws is that they're written so broadly that they're just there to stoke fear and uncertainty in educators. So that was Dr. Douglas Lowen who talked to us about this broad censorship topic in the educational sphere. He's a public policy professor here at UNC. He was a great guy to talk with. Absolutely. So then what is it exactly that we're talking about? So if it's very vague, it can just create, you know, a blanket like, oh, no, we're not going to talk about that. So Lowen is one of many people who have already voiced their kind of anxiety about this incitement of fear around certain topics, which we actually asked him about in a follow-up. Yeah, he gave some insight on how DeSantis has been so successful. No, I think we, as a society, we've been, you know, in some ways we're more diverse than we've ever been. And in other ways, we're more separate than we've ever been, right? Because the media landscape is, is such that everybody can find their media platform that appeals to them and speaks their language. And, you know, fear, fear is, a, is a great motivator, right, when it comes to politics. Um, and in some ways, it's, I think, the last um, four to eight years has shown us that, um, that fear may be a greater motivator than, you know, love or kindness. 
When looking at these trends, it's not a great feeling to look at the fear-mongering used in politics today. DeSantis has proven to be a speaker who appeals to the masses because in just 2022 alone, he was able to spark a trend throughout the country to sponsor, quote-unquote, don't say gay and anti-woke bills. He also started a trend of involving parents like never before. A lot of them are starting to raise concerns since DeSantis told them about how they should be. The idea that a parent of like a fifth grader uh, should just sit idly by if they have pornographic material in the library, uh, I'm sorry, that is not, not acceptable. That's the thing though, according to Dr. Lowen, the government can kind of do that. That policymakers get to decide what's in the curriculum. They can choose to teach evolution or not. They can choose to teach math or not. Policymakers writ large get to make that decision because they pay for schooling. Because things like Common Core and standardized testing not only exist on the local level, but the state level. Exactly. Although self-censorship and almost like a paranoia is most likely what's going on. That's a separate matter from uh, for example, what a teacher can and can't say in a classroom, right? And so that's a self-censorship thing. So Lawen told us that this could then lead to lawsuits and a whole bunch of chaos for these different schools involved, but at large, the school systems themselves. And then you have to have brave people who say, no, I'm going to teach history the way I've been teaching it, and then a parent will complain, and then someone will sue, and then the school district will then have to decide whether to, to defend that case or not. And if it's a conservative school district, chances are they're going to either fire the teacher if they're not tenured or reprimand them and tell them to change their curriculum. If they're a liberal school district, then maybe they will stand up. But it depends on how much money they have because it's costly. So what exactly is to be done about all of it? Well, he, he did give us some information about there usually is one person or a particular small group that stands up and puts their foot down, essentially. Okay, so that's a part of how censorship is overcame, or how it's overturned in a sense. But there's still the change in public perception that would be needed first. Right. We had a small question that eventually became one of our main focuses. When does conformity become oppression? And how does the idea translate into censorship? There were so many different examples, specifically within the states. Cameron and I wondered how this idea was interpreted by the general public. So we decided to walk around the campus here at UNC Chapel Hill to get a lot of different views from students and faculty. Conformity becomes oppression when the general public doesn't align with your own views and sometimes you're forced to follow the way they're going and that may not be true to yourself and if you act true to yourself then everyone's going to reject you or at least treat you differently so i feel like that's when it becomes oppression i guess when you don't realize that you're conforming that's when oppression really starts conformity becomes oppression at the point at which society and forces conformity over the will of the individual and to the detriment of 
society's own health? We personally had a hard time answering this question, leading us to do a whole bunch of research on instances where conformity did actually become oppression. Governor Greg Abbott, Republican, ordered education officials to, quote, develop statewide standards, prevent the presence of pornography and other obscene content in Texas public schools, including in school libraries. We asked a lot of different people. And there were so many good answers. But answers made us think a little more about the meaning of freedom. So we decided to add our idea of censorship and oppression by starting with the basics. What is freedom? A sense of belonging is probably maximized when you feel most free, when you don't feel confined by uh, your environment. It lets people express who they are and connect with people who are similar to them or different from them. And so I think it lets people feel a sense of belonging because they can be who they are. It's a natural sense. One of my favorite characters in U.S. history is a guy named Mario Savio, who was about the free speech movement at UC Berkeley. And he told people, with freedom comes responsibility. So with freedom comes the responsibility to be part of something bigger. You know, you, yeah, we all have the freedom to do whatever it is we want to do, but that's not what real freedom is. Freedom is to do what, you know, society needs us to do. If you have the freedom to express yourself, and, like, as a whole, we all have freedom to express ourselves, then we, like, find other people who, like, have, like, similar interests or similar ideas, and then, like, those similarities give us a sense of belonging. A consistent idea that came up within these interviews was the idea that we should fight back this idea of censorship and conformity. There weren't any specific solutions given, but we were excited to see what people thought about censorship and where people crossed the line with their education. There are many examples of conformity becoming oppression, not just the ones we mentioned today. Sex is expanding a lot of books dealing with LGBTQ, sex, and related topics. Even in Idaho, Northern Idaho Community College, or NIC, is another situation being discussed where students and teachers find themselves having to answer to the board for more than enough. The idea of power also plays a huge role in citizenship and conformity. You could think of the board for Northern Idaho as those power-hungry policymakers in government. And if you look closely, that's what brings all these ideas together. Everyone wants control over something, ranging from how different parts of education are presented and most importantly, what is presented. Hi. Hola. Ni hao. Ciao on. Sawaddi. Annyeonghaseyo. Konnichiwa. Namaste. Zdravete. Ahoy. Hello. This is Lessons on Language Barriers with Victor and Zach. Language barriers are seen everywhere in our daily lives. The U.S. is a country built on immigrants, and with that, the cultures and practices that they carry are very important to the identity of our country. Yeah, they are very common, especially for people that come from immigrant households. In the United States, first-generation Americans, ones that are foreign-born, have acquired U.S. citizenship, and second-generation Americans, ones that are born and raised in the U.S. but have one or more foreign-born parents, make up a little over 25% of the U.S. population. I think when we look closer to home, we can see how certain aspects of our culture, such as language, become sort of muddled. I grew up with my family speaking Creole and Arabic to me fluently. Assalamu alaikum. For me, it was my mom and my grandparents that primarily spoke Vietnamese to me. Ciao on. Oh, I'm assuming that since you spoke Vietnamese with your family fluently, then you're pretty good with the language. 
Well, no, not necessarily. I talked to my mom about my earlier years and the rise and I guess fall of my proficiency in Vietnamese. Like, what do you, what do you, what I guess do you think is like the reasoning for like, I'm not really like as good as like speaking and writing it compared to like understanding and reading? Um, I think because um, you need to practice. I think I speak English with you like more than uh, Vietnamese, right? So that's why. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's why um, you you you're not good at it. I mean, but you understand. I think you understand. You just um, don't know how to say it back. Yeah, it's practice. It's it's all about practice. I also talked to my mom about how she grew up both in Vietnam and the United States, and how she adjusted to having to speak both Vietnamese and English either at home or at school. So you came over to the United States in the early 90s from Vietnam with your family, your close family. Uh, what languages did you primarily speak at home with your family um, while living in the United States? Uh, well, my parents speak Vietnamese to us. Um, so yeah, that's the main language we speak at home. Just Vietnamese. Um, my parents would let it watch, you know, the Hong Kong movie with the Vietnamese um, subtitle. It would be voiceover by like Vietnamese, like voice actors, right? Correct. Yeah. Um, okay. They don't want us to forget Vietnamese. What was it like trying to communicate with other people in your school, such as like your teachers and your class? Um, I was a very shy person, so um, it's very hard for me. Um, you know, to um, to communicate with my, um, I think it's easier for me to communicate with my uh, my teachers than with my um, um, classmates. I don't talk much to them. I only I only talk whenever I have to with my teachers. Very hard for me the first um, the first year, and then that was seventh seventh grade. When I get to the eighth grade, that when I um I don't have to stay in the ESL class anymore, because okay. um my teachers want you know they want me to move up to, to be with the regular kid. Your mom really had a lot of good stuff to say, and I was really interested by her own experiences as both a student and a parent when it came to learning and teaching languages. Yeah, and she did have a lot of insightful information, but I think one of the things I found pretty funny was that. Um, I found pretty much other methods to retain language requirement and proficiency. Also, like for me personally, I think the one of the things that keeps me like rooted, I guess, to my identity of like and like also my like language like capability is also like I think food in general. I think mm -hmm. Vietnamese like food a lot, like like uh, stuff like that. Uh, just like knowing like how to pronounce it and stuff and like practicing it. Like when I was in Philly, I was like reading through the menu and like Vietnamese just cause like I wanted to like be able to read it and also like understand what everything means. Like, There was an article that I found about how adolescents can build their language comfort through what is called the, the F's quote unquote. What do the F stand for? Well, the first one I recognized immediately was food. Right, that makes sense based on your discussion with food with your mom. Yeah, exactly. The other Fs could include things like famous people, festivals, flags, folklore, and fashion, or the surface features of culture. I guess the point is to use important things connected to your culture in order to revert that back into building your language proficiency. 
My mom and I covered a lot of different topics regarding language personally, but the one thing we didn't talk about was the history of language. When we talk about language barriers, I think that it's important to emphasize the impact that colonization had on languages. The biggest thing about dialects is that many of them are caused by various regional disruptions and colonization has played a huge part in this. When you look at languages like Arabic, you have to realize that not all Arabic sounds the same. In Morocco, they speak a dialect called Darija, which is heavily influenced by French and Spanish due to colonization. I think specifically when you talk about countries in Africa that were forcibly partitioned by Europe and the West into countries that were partitioned solely on land, which caused ethnic groups to be split up, things within cultures such as languages can also become isolated and distinct over a long period of time. I interviewed my friend Ali, a Moroccan-Egyptian-American who is fluent in Arabic. All right, so I'm here with Ali Khatib for my interview. Ali, as another Arab person, I know that you know that there's an Arab diaspora, per se, and that every country has their unique twist on the language due to colonization. I just wanted to get your view on, like, major dialect shifts or, like, if you go on, if you've been to a place where, like, you were completely unable to understand other Arabs because what you knew was different inherently? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think, for me, a lot of the, the difference between the Muslim and the like dialect is sort of like the French influence on the the Moroccan dialect. Mm. Uh, I think, like for example, uh, we would say like Sayara mm. uh, or Arabia for like a car, for example. And in you know like a Moroccan dialect, you'd say Tomobil, mm-hmm. like you would sort of similar to French. Um, and you know, my mom grew up speaking French and Arabic. She moved to the states. She learned uh, English, and so there's a lot of that that overlap. And it's I think because of that, it's been able to sort of like supplement my um, understanding of Arabic in a lot of other situations. I think your friend had a lot of important insight to offer about the history of colonization within our current diasporas. Yeah, and living in new places may mean a loss of certain aspects of one's culture, especially with language. Even though I still immerse myself in a lot of my own personal parts of my cultural identity, I still feel that language sometimes definitely gets muddled so much because we live in the United States. And the only language predominantly that we mostly speak here at most times is English. And even though all of us are required to take some form of foreign language requirement, most of us don't actually retain what we learn in the class. Speaking of classes, something I've also thought about is how in college we are surrounded by people from various backgrounds and walks of life. I wonder how close international students and domestic students are. I think with Chinese international students, and here, this is a paper I found. The paper is called Supporting Practices to Break Chinese International Students' Language Barriers, the First Steps to Facilitate Their Social Adjustment. In the paper, it says, although Chinese international students move to a new country, many of them still stay with their Chinese counterparts and have less communication with people of other countries, and thus they have little opportunity to socially adjust to the new country. I find one of the more emphasized goals within college, I guess, besides getting a degree, is finding a sense of belonging in the community. Right, and the most important thing when it comes to finding belonging is finding people that you can communicate efficiently with. I think when it comes to international students, there really is that sort of challenge where one, you're also faced with like just like living in a new environment that come to universities to learn and study, but then also become a part of a community 
there are a lot of challenges when you're from a different place and especially with international students it becomes even harder when you have to learn a, lang a new language to in order to communicate with other people and i think it would probably be easier for international students to talk to someone if they speak the same native language i think wrapping up it's important to think about how language and specifically language barriers can have an impact on the ways we live how we speak and ultimately who we are able to speak to gives access or limits access to what new things you can learn and what new friends you can make. How can we further improve the connections we make with other people? It's very important to understand how we can better communicate with people because overall the biggest key to curbing like a sense of isolation and loneliness is through communication, through making familial bonds with friends and family and to be able to have a touch or impact on other people and for those same people to have an impact on you as well is important to creating a further connected world. This was Lessons on Language Barriers with your hosts Zach and Victor. Please uh, check out the website for the episode, which the students built. This should be linked in the description on Pitcast. Once you're there, you can find more information about the various topics covered in the podcast, including show notes, resources, and further reading. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.